when you declare something massive that you want to accomplish, by definition, as soon as you declare something big, which you're very excited about, as I said, it brings into focus everything that's inconsistent. Another way of saying that is it gives you a hell of a lot more problems. You know, if you said we're going to do something really small, you wouldn't have nearly the problems. So the more, but, but we as human beings don't think that way. We, we still think that problems are bad and shouldn't happen. Welcome back to the Max Out Show, where today I'm joined by the founder and CEO of Achieve Breakthrough, Mike Straw. Achieve Breakthrough is an award-winning organizational change consultancy that helps businesses improve their culture and leadership, as well as achieve seemingly impossible breakthroughs. Mike came highly recommended from my dad, who's been a huge fan for years. So of course I had to reach out and get some of his wisdom on creating breakthroughs in business and life. So Mike, welcome to the show. Hello. Super very, excited. Very pleased to be here. Yeah, super excited to have you. So before we take a look at creating breakthroughs in our lives, I first want to discuss why transformation efforts fail so often. In fact, in your, your book, a fantastic read, by the way, here, the little book of uh, change, you cite a study that says that 75% of transformation efforts actually fail to get the re results that they seek. So why is it so hard to make those changes that we want to make in life? Um, I think it's, I mean, the short answer is habit. I think the, the long answer is, um, uh, in my view, that the, the tra transformation and change is a major shift in people's worldview, their frame of reference, what they believe is possible and not possible. And I think so many change efforts are all based on a process change, a structure change, a new strategy change. And fundamentally, people's frame of reference, their underlying assumptions, beliefs about what's possible never change because you're dealing with, um, I think a lot of the time, they're dealing with the, the processes that need to change and the, the things that we do that need to change rather than fundamentally shifting the thinking that actually needs to change. So I think it requires a major shift in thinking and most change efforts don't address that fundamental belief system and thinking change. It's the same, I, it's the same as... You know, every, it's the same dynamic as all these New Year's resolutions people have about what they're going to do or how they're going to be thinner and how they're going to be, um, uh, they're going to do more exercise and then after a while it just dissolves down because their fundamental principles they run their lives on don't really change. So I think it's, it's akin to that, but it's just on a massively organizational scale. Yeah, you know, I love this so much. And I think like we live in this information age nowadays, right? Where like all the outside stuff, all the actions, the behaviors, they're sort of out there, right? Oftentimes you can Google it when it comes to New Year's resolutions. And even the business, oftentimes it's obvious what needs to change, right? The, the physical action steps. But as you say, like what's often not addressed is those internal mindset shifts that we need to make to actually be able to can take those action steps, right? Yeah. Yeah, I love it. And it's, uh, I tell you, it, it, it's like... If it was as simple as we just need to read the book, I mean, funny, because I've actually read the book, but anyway, <laughs> but if it was as simple as reading the book and people could just copy, that's why, that's why these things don't happen, because most of the stuff is being written. It's just we keep on still looking at the same things through um, uh, the wrong lenses, or we're looking at it through our historic way of thinking. So I think it's part of the reason that most of these transformation efforts fail to deliver on the promise is that the context or the frame of reference they look through is um, uh, from an old world. Uh, there was an analogy that sort of always springs to mind of, um, it, you imagine you inherit your 
grandmother's house and it's nice and you change the furniture and you change things and you rationalize, well, it's getting better. Then someone tells you, look, uh, it, the light bulbs are, are blue and you suddenly realize, my God, there's a blue light and that's why it never felt. So you change the light bulb and put on a new light bulb and then suddenly everything you just did doesn't quite look right anymore. So I think context is decisive. The frame of reference is like the color of the light bulb. And it's the, if you can fundamentally shift that, then I think transformational efforts really um, uh, succeed. Yeah, I love that. So then let's take a look at those seven shifts that you talk about in your book that are necessary to make those shifts last. So the first shift here is really letting go of the past. So why do people need to let go of the past first before they can start with that transformation effort and setting new goals? Okay, this, this is... Um, I think if you think about leadership is the art of making something that was impossible to possible to real. Um, to, do, to do that, you've got to get firstly free of your um, freedom from history where it limits you. And the ability to get free or let go of the past is to have a fundamentally different, to have a profound relationship with your sets of assumptions and what you've accomplished historically or the organization has and be able to stand outside of that and see what limits you and what's limiting an organization. And I think often um, that, that shift, that being the first shift, is probably the most profound because you, you're getting past your ways of winning or your winning strategies or your winning formulas that may have worked historically. But when you look at the future going forward, it's just... They, they keep you into a prisoner of the past. There was a, there was a lovely article where um, Gary Kasparov was interviewed, you know, the grand chess master, and he'd won seven grand masterships. And they said, look, which one was your hardest? And he said, well, it wasn't the first, because the first no one knew me. And it wasn't the second, because everyone thought I just got lucky on the first. But it was the third, because everyone knew my strategy, what I did, my moves, how I was going to do things. And I had to get the muscles to unlearn unlearn what have made me successful and then the fourth the fifth the sixth the seventh and uh you know weren't as hard because i'd i'd got the muscles to unlearn and i think the letting go of the past is akin to that where you've got a he, he coined a phrase it, there's a fine line between our experience like the real factor experience and our baggage and i think then the baggage is the history that we carry around with us that we bring into every situation so the first shift is about freeing yourself from that history and that baggage that you can conceive something very, very different. You know, I love this idea of, of unlearning, right? And I think anytime that people want to set a new future for themselves, they immediately go to the past, to their past results, to predict how they're going to do, right? So if you're overweight, yes. for example, you're not going to believe that all of a sudden you can get in great shape simply because your past has limited you in that way. I think it's the same in business and every other area of our lives, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. So then how do we learn to let go of that? How do we learn to to really unlearn these, these habits and these beliefs and these assumptions that we've made for often years and decades in our lives. Yeah, I, th I think there's a couple of dynamics here. I don't think it's, it's not easy. It's a, a set of muscles, but it's not impossible. Um, the way that we see it is that you've got to see how we get captured by our past. You've got to really see it, feel it and touch it. Um, so I think the first step at one level is that you become um, aware of how we get caught in our own patterns of behavior and our own patterns of thinking. When, you're, when you see, my goodness, I've been caught in my own patterns of behavior, at that moment, you have a choice, either to carry on or to create what the new is. 
And then what we do a lot of the time is have people start to get in touch with like, what do you really, really want? Like, what could be possible? What is it you're interested in? Um, what is it that you want if you weren't limited by whatever's happened historically? What is it you could dream of, what you would really want? And I think when people get in touch with that, they, um, that's the first start of the process. But the place it then goes to afterwards is, given what you really, really want and what you're trying to accomplish that you could dare to dream of, I think then you start to bring into focus all of the elements of your past history, your past experiences that will then limit. And then you need a load of techniques or ways of thinking to have them not limit you anymore. But it starts with first recognizing it, and secondly, um, having a willingness to be uncomfortable and go for something that you, you wouldn't normally do from your history. And I think that that's the first uh, sort of part of this, of this shift. You know, it sounds like it's, it's really about cultivating this almost like childlike curiosity and sense of possibility again. Because when you ask a, a five-year-old, like, what do you really want, right? They will tell you what they actually want, right? They'll tell you, I want to go to the moon. I want to be this princess or this prince, right? Like the, the biggest dream that they can think of because they don't have like that past baggage, as you called it, right? They're like, they're all the failures and the mistakes and all the problems. They only see possibility in future. Yeah, and I like, I like that, Max, because I think we're, you're right, in our childlike um, uh, way, we're a lot freer. And, and it's interesting because you ask someone, um, uh, what do you really want to accomplish? And they tell you what they think they can accomplish based on history. So, it, and I say in the book, I talk about a, um, uh, imagine if you lived in a tower block and you're in the middle of the tower block and you say, look, what do you really want? You go, well, I'd like to live at the top of the tower block. And you say, well, okay, if you could have that, but what do you really want? Well, I actually don't want to live in a tower block. I'd like to live in a, um, I'd actually like to live in a, in a lake. Uh, in the countryside, in a house. That's what I really want. Well, if you could have that, would you? Well, actually, I'd like to live in the south of France. <laughs> so most people only ever commit to what they can. But when you get them in touch with like, okay, what could be possible? You suddenly go like, well, if you're really asking me, I'd like this. That, that moment there is magical because you're opening up a, the potential for people to dream big. And then once they're there, and you, the next question is you're asking is like, well, if you really, really want that, what is it that is going to get in the way of that happening? So you bring them back down again to, in a way, to, to get in touch with what is the conventional wisdom that's going to get in the way. And when you, when, you, when you analyze that question, most of the reasons these great things can't happen is because you and I have inherited some story or some narrative about why it isn't possible. And then the, the, then the work really begins. Then the work is about how do you start to pull apart those narratives, those stories, and see them for what they are, which is just a story. There's not a lot of fact there, it's just a story about why I don't think something is possible, whether my boss won't do this, or whether I don't think I'm good enough. And then that's all the work you've then got to do. I love that. So what does that process look like of, of dealing with that story? Does that usually work through coaching or through you know, journaling, introspection? What are some techniques that maybe even you use in your own life to, to uncover those stories? Yeah, I think it's, um, uh, I think journaling is powerful. I think it's coaching. I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's having a deep inquiry into why, looking at yourself in the mirror and, and having an inquiry like why this is impossible. What is it I'm telling myself? And then you suddenly discover actually it's, um, it's true that they're quite, they're clear beliefs, but actually um, you ask yourself the question, are you committed to living your, life 
inside of that prism of beliefs? Or are you interested in what are the muscles you need to cultivate to work outside of that? And that means the muscles could be, let's say one of the things that's limiting you is, look, I don't have the impact I could have, or I don't think um, um, I could uh, make that happen. What they're usually describing is a capability they haven't got yet. And if you can work with them then on developing that capability, whether it's the capability to influence, whether it's the capability to think broader, whether it's the curiosity capability that they don't have because they haven't exercised that muscle. When you, when you realize it, it's then just a set of muscles you've got to exercise. A bit like, um, a bit like going to a gym where they give you a workout. There's a, there's, a mental, there's a mental workout to learn on how do you make the impossible happen. And there's a series of capabilities to develop in being able to do that. Curiosity would be one of them. Yeah, I love this because it sounds like it's not just about setting sort of that glorious vision, right? And then staying in dreamy land, but actually then bringing it back to reality and asking yourself, like, what's limiting me right now, right? And I think the, yeah. the thing is that most of the time there is something in ourselves, a lack of skill set or a lack of mindset that stops us from actually becoming the person that's capable of achieving that yet, right? Yeah. But, but I love what you're saying here about then actively addressing those things and learning those skills and learning those mindsets that we need to get to be able to achieve that. Yeah, and, it, and the, there's, a, there's an important distinction about most people think of these visions or these goals as like something out there, like way away, you know, like in the mountain behind you. Yeah. Um, but it's how do you start to be that way now? How do you start to have that mindset now rather than, you know, I'll, um, I'll, uh, I'll get there in a few years. It's like, you know, how do you start to be that way now? And then what happened? And that's a, that's a big shift in orientation that if let's say that you want to be uh, or you've committed your organization's committed to being, um, uh, you know, a leader in its field, um, uh, being the best, a lot of them are in there or being transformed. Most people talk about it is like, that's where we want to be in a few years time. But how would you be that leader that's transformed right now? How would you, how would that transformed leader start to look at the current sets of circumstances, the current uh, things that we need to do and you start to inform your actions in the present from your dream you have in the future and, that, and that's important because it's 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 akin to planning in action rather than planning to plan you know this is really an idea that comes up over and over again in most of the the interviews that i've done with my guests all the really successful you know, leaders athletes whatever it is they have this intention of how they want to bring their vision into today right and so one of the yeah. things i've observed is they're very clear on how exactly they want to show up today, right? Whether it's the emotional states or how they want to treat people. They don't just say, oh, in five years, I want to you know, get to this title or position, but actually say, hey, today, I want to like make this kind of impact. Today, this is how I want to treat people. Today, this is really what I want to bring into the world. And by doing that, you almost become that person today already, right? And then the outside stuff is really just a lack time of that. Yeah, and, and, and it, there's, a, there's a, you're actually right, because it's, it's, there's a thinking process we go through, which is um, four steps in a way. The first step is you've got to reinvent what we as leaders or individuals believe is possible. And that reinvention is a reinvention outside of uh, getting free of the history, um, getting free of the past experiences, then the capacity to be very, very ambitious. And it is a capacity, there's capacity to really think big. And then when you've done that, how do you then start to um, uh, develop the abilities you need? But the second bit is you, is you then have to become aware of your unconscious DNA. 
the unconscious things and, you, and you're working with people so they become aware of the unconscious DNA, the unconscious way they think. So you can um, have it rather than be it in a way. And then, and then you're asking people on the third step to um, uncover what is missing, missing and essential for things to change right now. So you, when people look at what's missing and essential to live that reinvented state now, they, they, they get in touch with um, uh, the things that they need to do. And then you're wanting to then um, start be, the last step is to be future focused on those things that you can tackle right away. But it's starting that process immediately. And I think um, it is slightly chaotic, but that's kind of how the world works at the moment. Yes. You, you, we, as, you, as you can experience, it's, it's like what we've suddenly realized is, is we can't plan, control or direct. So you're left with actually all we can do is dream big, um, see ourselves as, give ourselves the agency and permission to do things, and then uh, act as catalysts and coaches all the way through. Yeah, I love that. So how, how do you approach the distinction then between, you know, setting these big dreams and at the same time working every day towards it when you're not sure yet, like what's going to happen, whether it's the COVID situation, whatever, when there's so much uncertainty, what do you tell people on how to still make those transformations last? Yeah, this is, um, so I think, as we all know now, the unknown is far greater than the known. Um, it requires a type of leadership and a type of way of working that you are, um, you can be really present. It, a bit like um, the, if you think of a surfer on a wave, they don't look backwards and complain, and they're not, when they're surfing, they're not talking about the wave that they should have got or they missed out on. They're, they're really coming from, um, being very, very present. They're present to the now. They're present to the environment that surrounds them. They're present to all the variables. And they have a sense of purpose of what they're wanting to do. So there's a, a, there's a set of capabilities to cultivate, which is about being present, uh, which means shifting your relationship to the circumstances, the future, the past. So you don't worry about the past. The past happened. Um, and you're, you're very in, in tune with what's happening now and what do I really want in the future. Then there's a capability of how do you innovate? How do you create and innovate um, and, uh, and, and build that, that muscle? I think there's another um, competency or capability is um, the capability to collaborate and network and uh, have relationships that are, um, are deep. They're deep relationships with people, with organizations, with groups of people. Uh, that allows you to collaborate because what you suddenly realize is actually we can't make the impossible happen or these things happen um, by ourselves anymore we need to collaborate and integrate network i mean you see it in this covid situation the networking effect that people have got is is enormous and then i think the other um abilities you want to um cultivate or create are in this world is to be able to sense sense what's going on in the system but not with all the judgment that we have around it just be able to really be with the, with the world and i believe if you have a very strong intention you get in action very quickly and you start operating and learning in that mode um uh, you know everyone talks about agile and minimal viable product and all of that but another way of saying that is you want to learn in action so you just got to get in act give yourself the freedom to learn and and correct quickly because you're not a judging machine in like, God, I shouldn't have done that. As soon as you put all of those, it stalls you. You know, you don't have a surf who nearly falls off the board that then starts to go, oh, you know, I should never have done that and all of those things. It's, it is a natural human being way of being, but you're moving into much more of a learning, creative, 
um, uh, person, and, that, and that's 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 the space I think we need to find ourselves in. But a lot of that is giving ourselves permission to be that way. You know, there's so much great stuff there. And so one of the the, the I guess maxims I try to live my life by is clarity comes from engagement, right? So it's not oftentimes not about just thinking about the stuff, right? Thinking about these goals, thinking about what we're gonna do in three months from now, but actually taking that first step. And oftentimes only by trying, you say, and and trying things out and and really learning by doing, can we actually get closer and, and really find the steps, you know, B and C and D and E and all that stuff. And so I love what you're saying here. And then also this, this aspect of relationships, I think, at work and collaboration is so critical. So a couple, a couple of days ago, I was talking to Tom Rath, um, who's the, the you know, founder and, and author of, of the whole Strengths Finder and all that. And he was talking about, you know, the importance of, of relationships at work and how most people, they don't even have like one single really close friend at work. And I think it's a, it's a huge problem. So what have you learned about, you know, this whole aspect of collaboration and, you know, really building positive relationships at work? Yeah, so I, so I think, um, I think people talk about cooperation and communication. I think when people talk about collaboration, I think they're often talking about cooperation and communication and coordination. Um, which isn't collaboration. So collaboration, I think, in its purest sense, is many great minds coming together and creating something that they could never have done on their own. So that's what I think true collaboration is. Now, to do that, you've got to let go of your ego or your right way of doing things um, and really to be able to explore. Now, that's, that's quite a... Um, to do that, that's quite an evolution of, your, of, your, of you as a person and a, and a society. Um, so my experience in most organizations is that the predominant relationship that's in there is called peaceful coexistence. You don't call me on my stuff. I won't call you on yours. We'll get along well and we'll go through. Where I think when you get into collaboration or the area of active mutual support, you, you really are founding your relationship on a enormous trust that you give to someone. It's giving trust, granting trust. Um, and that trust is based on a synergy of commitment. So you're, you're relating to people based on the commitments you have and what you really want to accomplish. And um, a foundation of, of, of trust and love, in effect, that, you can, um, that you're going on this adventure to create something that you neither of you believed you could before, which requires a, a level of connectedness that um, I don't, I, I actually, actually think COVID has brought a level of connectedness that we haven't appreciate we haven't had before um, because people are checking in with people people who wouldn't normally check in are checking in to see how are you people are bringing their family into a conversation where they haven't been before so um, yeah I think collaboration comes from a synergy of trust and wanting to create something together a shared purpose where often I think people misuse the word for cooperation coordination which it, it isn't but that it is a quality of relationships that um, and, and I think they're also akin to a level that's more like a sports coach or an executive coach has, uh, where you really um, have that quality rather than, I think, a neighbor or a friend or an advisor where you, you share things, but there's no real synergy of commitment there. You just, you just share. And that's, that's one of the big changes, I think, that is coming into organizations. Wow, so am I getting this right that it's really about sort of having this foundation of a shared mission or a shared commitment to a higher goal um, that really serves as sort of the foundation of those 
those relationships and collaboration efforts? Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you look at pharma, um, uh, where your dad works and everything, but you, you, if you think of pharma at the moment, there's an article in um, uh, Fortune magazine that's just come out um, talking about how farmers are collaborating, but their shared purpose is how do we support the world in this COVID-19 situation? Or, um, and they're collaborating in a way that farmers never collaborated before. So if you think about that, so that is a shared purpose that's coming that is way beyond just normal shareholder value. Um, and, and I think that is, it's not that that didn't exist before, but I think it's on steroids at the moment. You know, it's on a, it's on a different plane. And I think if we could have that same collaborations around, I mean, healthcare on the, on the things that the, the world really needs or on the environment, if you go out to that place. Or, you know, that's what's so frightening about um, uh, what's happening in Europe. And, you know, the, you know uh, I live in the UK, so the UK leaving Europe. Um, is the risk that the collaboration doesn't happen in the same way. Now, there's lots of, I'm not going to get political about that, but there's lots of different orientations, but I think the world needs relationships and collaboration to a shared purpose more than it ever has before. Yeah, for sure. And in your book, you have this great quote that I think goes along with that, which is, fear of loss is greater than desire of gain. I think oftentimes it's, it's those tragedies, right? That, that sort of rally people together, right? It's the, the big challenges and setbacks, like now the COVID-19 thing that no one saw coming, right? And now it's like the thing that forces people really to start to collaborate almost out of necessity, right? Yeah. And I think if we can create by design scenarios, uh, not like COVID, but scenarios yeah. <laughs> where, where it facilitates these great minds coming together to co create something, and I think our organizational constructs are, um, uh, don't facilitate these naturally. Yeah, you know, we have different P&Ls. There's a, they're called competitors. You know, like, uh, uh, and actually, I think there is a, it, it, it likens, likens me, this COVID situation is like, um, uh, if you imagine a, a play, Act one is where you're, you're happily going towards your ambitions, your tenure ambitions, whatever it may be. Then at the end of act one, um, uh, this character comes in called COVID, who causes chaos. chaos. Then act two is, the, is like an art house play of the light and dark, good and evil playing out, the polarity that's existing at the moment. You know, in healthcare, are we good for healthcare for everybody or just the people who can afford it? All of this this right, wrong, good, bad, collaborate, don't collaborate, all of that. And I think we're now sort of entering into act three, which is where we're all part of this play, but I think we need to move to the writer's table to be authors of how we want it to end. And I think you've got a lot of people who are questioning, what does my organization stand for? Um, I think there's a lot of pride out there if they've discovered the roots and the values of their organization, but it's asking big questions about how do we collaborate? How do we solve some of the world's toughest problems by really truly collaborating. And there was a lovely, um, it, was a, it was on Netflix recently, a, um, a, you may have seen it about Bill and, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, it was called Mike Meet Bill. And, he, and, and it, was, it was great because he was talking about one of the um, areas that he's really interested in from his philanthropic areas, but the Bill and Gates, Lin, Melinda Gates Foundation. Melinda Gates Foundation is about um, uh, how do we solve the sanitary problem in third world countries? And so he made a major declaration, which was how do we get toilets to work with no power, no water, and at $50 a toilet? 
um, or, or and, and you suddenly throw that kind of problem. Now there isn't, that breaks all conventional wisdom, but he's got loads of people collaborating to solve for that challenge. And, um, you know, that, that, the heart of great collaboration, I think, is to create a purpose which taps into what people would deeply want to achieve that is way beyond the ego of the individual or the company. Um, and that's where I think you get some incredible things to happen. Wow, you know, this, this story reminds me of this, this beginning slogan of Microsoft in its early days when they said, we want to bring a, a computer in every single household, right? And at that mm. point, and, and you talk about this in the book also, right? This was like, it was so far away from the current reality, like you couldn't even yes. dream about it yet, right? But it's only by setting yeah. this breakthrough ambition that then people start to think about like, hey, how could this even, you know, how could we actually make this happen? Yeah, it's a vital ingredient. And you see some companies doing some amazing stuff at the moment. You know, Roche, um, uh, you know, the three to five um, increase in medical advances um, were half the cost of society. That's a phenomenal um, uh, breakthrough they've declared. To, but what, as soon as you say that, the mechanics that come in is all of the things that are inconsistent with that show itself. And then it's your ability to tackle all those things that are inconsistent. And that's really how the making breakthroughs happen by design happens. It, it starts with some bold declaration that then brings into um, to focus all of our mental models and our way of thinking that gets in the way of that happening. And then you're developing the muscles to overcome all of those. And that's the heart of of, uh, of this kind of work and this transformational work. Yeah, you know, I love this so much, especially because like, yeah, like you say, once you set that vision, you have to unlearn these, these processes and these assumptions, right? Because you realize that there's no way with where I am right now and who I am right now to get to where I want to go. And so you have to literally let go of all that to, to enable the space for that new stuff. And yeah. so already start talking a little bit about, you know, gaining energy from setbacks and, and moving beyond and writing that next chapter, that, that act three of, of COVID and, and other mm. setbacks in our lives. So what does that process look like of deliberately, really proactively dealing with, with problems and setbacks and, and failures in our lives? Yeah, it's, that, it's interesting, Max, because it, it's, um, it's, it's an illogical process in a way. Like we're, we're, um, we are um, uh, human beings who, who tend to feel, uh, go to our comfort zones very, very easily. So when you declare something massive that you want to accomplish, by definition, as soon as you declare something big, which you're very excited about, as I said, it brings into focus everything that's inconsistent. Another way of saying that is it gives you a hell of a lot more problems. You know, if you said we're going to do something really small, you wouldn't have nearly the problems. So the more, but, but we as human beings don't think that way. We, we still think that problems are bad and shouldn't happen. You know, good parents don't have problem kids. Um, good schools don't create problems. You know, all of this, this whole way of thinking. So what usually happens is people go very bold. And then what they dawns on them, and they start to then water that down. They go, well, you know, they rationalize the situation, justify it, say, well, maybe we shouldn't go quite that bold, and maybe we do that in year two or year three, and they walk it backwards. So the first thing that happens is you've got to realize that's a natural human behavior to suddenly the initial boldness, as, the, as it dawns, gets overridden by, yeah, but I'm not sure how we'll do that, and all of the normal rationalization and justification comes in. So the first thing is to recognize that, uh, that, um, that dynamic. The second thing is to say, actually, 
I'm still committed to this, so I'm going to find a way. So when you then decide to find a way, you then start to explore, well, what's missing? And all it is is something's missing. And then um, who do I need around me and how do I get the wherewithal to, to, to overcome those, those, those missings? But you've got to be able to intervene in the natural human condition that rationalizes the situation, justifies it, and explains it away. Because that's when you get results equals no result plus a story. So if you can break that out and just say, actually, you know what? What we've just got to get good at is overcoming the inevitable setbacks. And setbacks aren't bad. They're bad. They're, they're, you're going to have them. And it's really going to test us all as human beings on how do we overcome those inevitable setbacks that we get. Um, and the first bit is to recognize it's a, it happens. Secondly, then let's get creative around how we solve all of these. And it's calling for our creativity. And it's, it's interesting because I think some people see the boundaries as um, the limit. All the boundaries is a limitation of our current thinking. And I think boundaries people argue for. I think what you're really looking is how do we use the boundaries of our thinking as a springboard for our creativity um, and our curiosity uh, rather than things that hold us in. They're things to spring off, actually. But that's, that, that's counterintuitive. Um, but that's, the, that's, that's, that's what we're actually saying in, in our work is now get those setbacks, welcome them, and use them as just indicators of the boundaries of our thinking as, as places to now start to get creative around. You know, I love this because it really is a, a paradigm shift, right, in our fundamental assumption about how, how the world works, right? Because once you've realized that setbacks are just a necessary part of the whole process, all of a sudden you can deal with them in a more empowering way, right? All of a sudden you're not going to give up anymore because you're just scared or because you're fearful or whatever, but you just know that it's part of the whole game. So I love yeah, it's part of the game and you, and you actually should want them. It's, it's interesting because it, it, this is ridiculous, the example I'm going to give now, but you know, if, you're, if your child walk, like you're teaching a child to walk and they walk a few steps, let's say they fall over three, four, five times, you don't turn around to them and say, sorry, that's it, you're done. Yeah. You're not going to walk. <laughs> but you know it's not for you clearly this walking thing don't do it you, we never have that relationship to it so with our child or our children to the most part we have an unconditional commitment to them to be whatever they can be so we are always there i don't think we have that same approach or thinking in um the normal stuff of of, of work and life and i think so if you look at the secret ingredient then it's it's to have a massive commitment for them, but an un, un, unconditional um, love, support, and relationship that you're prepared to work with everybody on whatever the setbacks are and whatever you, you would do. And I think it's, it's getting back to that fundamental thing we have when we're working on things that we're, we're really, really committed to. And I, th I think part of the, you know, the 75% of change efforts that fail to deliver on the promise piece um, I sometimes wonder whether we were really committed to it in the first place. We may have had good intentions. I think people have two lists, a list of things they're really committed to and a list of strong wish, wants and desires, but it hasn't got that same, uh, same commitment. And I think that's, um, uh, yeah, in this work, it is inviting people in to get in touch with what they really, really want to accomplish. Yeah, I love this idea of total commitment and to those things that we actually want to bring into the world, right? And so on this show, Mike, we always love to celebrate failure as a stepping stone to growth and to personal development and to more success. So throughout your own career, have you had a favorite failure? 
God, I've had quite a few favorite <laughs> failures. I think the um, the biggest failure I had is I had this um, notion of um, doing this work with with this group, and I I, um, I went in and I. I treated it as if it was a process. And you've got to imagine this is two organizations that were merging, two very powerful organizations, and they brought me in to help them uh, do something. And um, it became very evident that, that actually someone else was something else was going on. And I carried on pretending that something else wasn't going on and trying to work with them on getting them aligned behind what they wanted to do. But ultimately, what I was trying to align them on was they were going to all try and get each other's jobs. They were two organizations merging together, two in the same place. And I actually didn't have the guts to call the situation that we were in, which is two teams being merged together. And actually the elephant on the table was actually, they were going to be taking each other's job. There was duplication. And I, I pretended that wasn't there. So I actually denied that. And, and then, and I, it was disaster. The whole thing was a disaster because I never, and, the, and the, what it really taught me is you've got to get the real situation on the table. You can't um, pretend that the real dynamics weren't happening. And, and that was a major failure because it was, and the reason I, I probably didn't confront it was because my own ego were trying to prove myself. So I, what I've realized is if you ever get to a, a place where you are trying to prove yourself, um, and you're not really listening to what's really going on, you're going to have a major failure. And that, that, that taught me an awful lot. It taught me a lot that um, actually I needed to uh, confront what's really going on for people and groups rather than try and take people through a process. And I think as soon as you get caught in a process approach, you, you fail dramatically. I think the other, on a, um, I think on another level, when you've, I failed on a, a number of things. And I think it just, it's the learning that you need to go through that actually um, makes the failure okay. I'm very good at rationalizing things. So if I don't, um, uh, if, you're not, if you're too quick at rationalization, you never learn. And I think that's where you've got to sort of um, embrace the failure that you have, not rationalize it too quickly, but just embrace it. That's been my probably biggest learning. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for sharing. So how do you, how do you then go about actually learning from that failure? Is it something like, you know, just taking a moment to, to look back at it, analyze really what happened, how you could have, you know, acted better? What does this process look like? Um, the process for me, it may be different for other people. The process for me is like um, uh, probably a bit of a, a ritual hitting of yourself uh, in terms <laughs> of uh, what I think you've got to allow for that. And then uh, in the quieter moments to look at um, what actually really happened there. Not my story or my melancholy story about what should have happened that didn't happen, but what actually happened. And then what is it that I've learned from that? And what would my, what would my winning moves be in the future if that, if that situation came around again? And to look at, I look at development from the point of view of, where was I and where am I now? And, and the difference between the two is, is, is how you've developed. And so the learning process is to let yourself get cross with yourself or whatever it is. But then in the quieter moments, think about like what actually really happened here 
and how do I, what have I learned that I will take forward next time? And it's having that kind of inquiry. I think that's where journalism, yeah, and, and I also have lots of people who are brilliant coaches. So they'll listen to the melancholy story and discard that, but then they'll really help me get to, okay, so what would you do differently? What's the paradigm shift? But what would be the or approach differently? And I think you've just got to have people around you that hold you in learning that, and then you never, never forget it. But you've got to build it then into um, uh, some of the ways you approach it and, and really be okay with, because the failure piece all usually exists in your ego. So you've got to go through a bit of getting outside of your ego and getting outside of that and just realize that there's, that it's just stuff happens and, um, and that's all. But it's the ego is where it all gets um, uh, tangled. And I think that was when I was talking about the merging of those two organizations earlier. Um, it was my ego that got caught. So the, when the ego's involved, there's not a lot of learning. So as long as you can... And, and I'm always working on this. This isn't something you 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 master. I think you and I um, are always going to be pushed at every time. So it's yes. it's uh, yeah, being okay with that. And I, I have a saying that comes in my mind often, which is um, there is no way that things should be. Things just happen. <laughs> and um, uh, and and that saying really was taught to me by one of my mentors. And what she brought to my my um, attention is that. If you can work out, if you can really live, there is no way that things should be. It allows you to hear things that you can then learn from. Um, if there's always a way that things should be, that's just your ego talking. And then there's not a lot of learning there. There's tactics, but there's not a lot of learning. Yeah, for sure. And also there's like this resistance to the reality of life, I think is one of the biggest struggles also for our well-being and happiness, right? When you constantly argue with reality, with how things are in you know, the real world, it takes away much of that, that joy and that energy and also that drive to become better in our lives, right? Now, before I ask my final question, Mike, where can listeners connect with you online? So what's your favorite you know, website, book, whatever it is that people can find? And in terms of um, what the we've done or- Exactly, uh, you, you and, and also Achieve Breakthrough, yes? Yeah, so I mean, you can connect with us on www.achievebreakthrough.com, all one word. Um, and the- that's how you best connect with me or in LinkedIn or anything like that. But there's, I think where I'm really learning at the moment is that is in um, some work by a group called the Leadership Circle Group, which do some fantastic stuff on yes. creative leadership. And I'm just spending a lot of time there um, at the moment on just learning more and more about this notion of creative leadership, agile leadership, transformational leadership. And that's kind of where my head's at at the moment. Awesome. Love that. Now, final question. What does it mean for you to max out your life? To max out my life. Yeah, I think it's to live a life of infinite possibility and to explore and create. And that for me is, that's about, that would be for me is maxing out my life, that I live in a place of what could be possible and I'm pushing myself all the time. I think that's what COVID has done, is it's, it's, it's recontextualized everything. And I'm on, I feel like I'm on, um, I'm on something at the moment because I'm just, my, all my senses, are uh, uh, fully engaged. I mean, there's tragedy in the world, obviously, but from a, um, and I'm deeply saddened about that, but the, the learning that we're going through at the moment is just fantastic. And that for me is maxing out my life.